The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies, the podcast where we dive into the history of baseball, the characters that make up its story, and how it makes up the folklore and legend of America's history. I'm Daniel Port, your host here now every single week here on Fridays, coming out at noon here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited for today's episode. We're going to continue, even though we have now moved into March. I wanted to do one last episode looking at uh, the history of black players in America and putting a a spotlight on uh, a particular black player who really somehow feels ingrained in the story of baseball into the myth and folklore and legend of the game while also being incredibly overlooked historically and by the average baseball fans. So I really want to put a spotlight on today's player, which is Josh Gibson. Now, we talk about the home run kings with hollowed whispers. You know, Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, Albert Poole, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and on. These are the names that we uttered when we stood in our backyard as kids and we tossed a ball up in the air, imagining ourselves in their shoes in the bottom of the ninth, hitting baseballs mostly into our neighbor's yards. Those were the names that we thought of. And unfortunately, due to our extremely disastrous racial history in this country, we have forgotten the name of perhaps the greatest home run hitter to ever hold a wooden bat, and that being a Negro League great Josh Gibson. If we thought lost statistics and unrecorded years gave Satchel Paige's career, as we talked about last week, a sense of myth and legend, this is only exacerbated with Josh Gibson's career. We'll never know how many home runs Gibson actually hit in his career. Baseball Reference has roughly 165 recorded home runs for Gibson, but we know that's just scratching the surface. If you go to the Hall of Fame, Gibson's Hall of Fame plaque credits him with nearly 800 home runs across his 17-year career. Author James A. Riley wrote in his biographical encyclopedia of the Negro Leagues that he hit 962 home runs, a nearly unfathomable number, especially if you think of the major league home run king right now is Barry Bonds with 756. Just an incredible number. Uh, it's really one of the true tragedies of baseball history that we'll never know just how many home runs the young catcher hit in his career. What we do have is the words of his peers and those who followed in his footsteps. As quoted in Joe Posnanski's write-up for the Athletics Top 100 on Josh Gibson, Hall of Famer Monty Irving said, I played with Willie Mays and against Hank Aaron. They were tremendous players, but they were no Josh Gibson. All-time great pitcher and Hall of Famer Walter Johnson said, His name is Gibson. He can do everything. He can hit a ball a mile. He catches so easy, he might as well be in a rocking chair. Throws like a rifle. Too bad this Gibson is a colored fella. Satchel Page, the current number one player on our list in last week's star, said, You look for his weakness, and while you're looking for it, he's liable to hit 45 home runs. And perhaps if you really want to gauge his impact on the lore and legend of African-American uh, baseball, when Barry Bonds broke the all-time home run record, he said, no, in my heart, it belongs to Josh Gibson. 
Much like Paige, no home run total or statistical overview will truly encapsulate Josh Gibson, but what we know of him is impressive. According to Seamheads.com, who have dedicated themselves painstakingly to recovering as many records of Negro League games as they can, Gibson hit 240 home runs in 918 games. Now, to give you perspective on that, it took Bonds 2,986 games at 762 home runs. If Gibson had played that many games at the home run pace we have for him, he would hit 940 home runs, almost 180 more than Bonds. Across the games that were found, Gibson had a career 201 OPS plus, second only to Babe Ruth at 206. He bests Ruth in WRC plus at 2 compared to Ruth's 194. His career 365 average would be second to only to Ty Cobb's 366 average. By baseball reference war, Babe Ruth leads the way with 183.1 war in 2,503 games. They had Gibson putting up 38.4 war in 598 games. At that rate, he would have put up 160.7 war, which would have been fifth all-time behind Ruth, Walter Johnson, Cy Young, and Barry Bonds, all of whom didn't play the grueling and difficult position of catcher. In fact, that 160.7 war more than doubles the highest catcher total ever at Johnny Bench's 75.1. And if you're thinking this is a lot of speculation extrapolation, obviously it's hard to take it all literally. It's just simply to put it in perspective of just how good Gibson was. This allows us to put it in the context of career lengths we know and game lengths that we, oh, that we know and are more familiar with. Heck, of the 11 seasons that Gibson played in the Negro National League, he led the league in home runs every single season uh, across 11 seasons. It's worth noting that, like we mentioned with Page, so very many of Gibson's games were played on barnstorming campaigns and exhibitions or in leagues in other countries where the statistics weren't tracked or tracked as well. Instead, since we really can't tell the whole narrative based on statistical output, before we jump into the year-to-year breakdown like I usually do, I'll try to tell some anecdotal stories that encapsulate Gibson's legend, and then we will go over the seasons that we do have, because some of them are genuinely extraordinary. Check out some Gibson's stories, or tall tales, if you will indulge my love for the mythology bit. First, my favorite. Uh, This is as quoted by Porzanski from Robert Peterson's Only the Ball Was White. Gibson was playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords then, and he hit a ball so high that nobody saw it land, and this is in Pittsburgh, he hits this ball. After looking at the empty sky for a few moments, the umpire finally ruled that if the ball wasn't going to come down, it had to be ruled a home run. The next day, the Crawfords had uh, left Pittsburgh and were playing in Philadelphia, when in the middle of the game, a ball came falling out of the sky and was caught by the center fielder. Gibson, the umpire shouted, you're out, yesterday, in Pittsburgh, which is just uh, astonishing, and Gibson had a reputation for hitting just monster home runs, just huge home runs. So this felt in line with that. And just that story just reeks of the humor and joy and fun of folklore and tall tales. And it's just such a cool story. I love it so much. And it's one of my favorite baseball anecdotes ever, let alone about Gibson. He was also known for hitting the longest home run in old Yankee Stadium. It was estimated to have traveled at least 580 feet. There's a set of bleachers that was in old Yankee Stadium that was considered unhittable. And he hit it there at the very least, if not hit it over them, which is just an incredibly long home run. It's just a huge, huge hit. And it's worth noting, he liked to hit most of his home runs to the opposite field. He was an incredible opposite field power hitter, which is just absurd and unheard of. There's a great quote about a monster home run he hit to the opposite field in Washington Park, in Griffith Park in Washington. And that park is huge. It's another one that these old stadiums are just enormous, and Griffith Park was no different. Apparently, he hit the ball so far that it went beyond the bleachers and hit a sign advertising hot dogs behind the stands. And Pittsburgh Courier writer Chester L. Washington said, hit the sign so hard, Washington wrote, that a fan hollered as dried paint and dust flew up from the board. By gosh, Josh knocked the mustard off that hot dog. Which is just, it's just great. That's perfect. I love it so much. It's just, that is how I like 
to hear my baseball described. It just it really encapsulates the best parts of the game and really gets us an idea of just how powerful Josh Gibson was as a hitter. Even if it is embellished or isn't, it's still this, I don't know, just this way of talking about the game that I miss from today's game in so many ways. Now, legend has it that Gibson started his professional career as a catcher, literally getting pulled out of the stands. In 1930s, the story goes, Gibson was a spectator at a game in which the Homestead Grays catcher, Buck Ewing, sustained an injury. Now, an 18-year-old Gibson, who by that time had started establishing a reputation in semi-pro games, was asked to suit up as a replacement. Like, literally pulled out of the stands. They went, hey, you, come play catcher. And, again, how to start a career that way... Is just, this is the kind of player myths and legends are born from. It's like the stories are enhanced by how little we have in terms of statistics or written record. And to look at it from the other side as well, it's easy to romanticize or, I guess in the case of detractors, sometimes easy to dismiss because of the lack of statistics or written record. But for me, these are the stories that make baseball great that demonstrate why we should love this beautiful game that we love so much. It's also worth remembering that a big reason we don't have a full record of Gibson's greatness is because of where the country was at the time. And the actions of Commissioner Kennesaw Landis, who might be my runaway favorite for the worst commissioner ever in Major League history, who blocked Gibson and many other African-American players from joining Major League Baseball at nearly every turn. There's a reason we don't have as much of a record of these players playing, and a lot of it's because we didn't let them play in the Major Leagues. We can enjoy and celebrate the stories of players like Gibson and pay those sort of outlandish and and extraordinarily fun stories about them and, and revel in the lack of statistics and things. But we also can't lose sight of what they faced and what they had to overcome to accomplish what they did and keep in mind and perspective why we don't have those numbers and why we don't have those things. With all that in mind, let's look at some of the seasons we do have for Josh Gibson. Before we do that, though, let's take a real quick break. Let's take our first break, and uh, then we'll be right back. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everybody. We've talked a little bit about the legend and who Josh Gibson was in terms of the way his peers viewed him and the way that the stories that were told about him paint him uh, but let's actually look at some of the numbers we do have i know we don't have a, as much as we'd like but some of them are really genuinely remarkable so gibson started his career at the age of 18 in 1930 where we have a 33 game record for him which he was playing in the negro national league at the time it was about a third of the roughly 100 game season that they played that year he played for the memphis red sox where he hit nine home runs and 37 rbis and just 123 plate appearances while hitting 378 with a 1.110 OPS. In 1941, he played in 48 games where he had eight home runs with 13 doubles and 42 RBIs and 39 runs. That's nearly a run and RBI per game as an 18-year-old. Just getting started. That's It's remarkable. It's really incredible for a rookie season, even if the numbers don't seem like it. When you start extrapolating it out for context... It really is just a remarkable season. Now, moving into 1932, he played in 70 games, hitting another eight home runs with 13 doubles, six triples, with a 321 average and an 889 OPS, with 50 RBIs and 54 runs scored. Now, it's worth noting this season at age 20, with a 133 OPS plus, that was the lowest OPS plus of his career, a 133 OPS plus, the worst he ever was by OPS was 33% better than the average hitter. In fact, he wouldn't have an OPS plus below 178 for the rest of his career. 178, which would, the rest of his career would span 14 more years here. Just incredible numbers from a slugging and on-base perspective here. Now, 1933 is the first real breakout season for Gibson as he plays in 69 games and hits 396 with 18 home runs, 15 doubles, 7 triples, 74 RBIs, and 61 runs scored. That's more than, when you really think about it, that's more than an RBI per game played, right? He had at least one RBI in every single game of the season on average for the season. That's 
Oh my. He had a 442 OBP with a 1.183 OPS, which is good for a 217 OPS plus. Now, for context, and I'm going to do this a lot throughout the podcast uh, episode here, because we had so few games and because they played fewer games in the season, I'm going to try and take some of these numbers and put them into the context of what what they would look like over a full Major League Baseball season. Keep that in mind. I'm not necessarily saying that means I would have expected Gibson to do that over 162 games or anything like that. I'm just trying to take those numbers and the rate at which he was putting up those numbers and put them in the context of the season length that we understand, if that makes sense, that we have the easiest ability to relate to. So if you took and extrapolated those numbers over 162 game season, this w- here's what the final counting numbers would have been. 42 home runs, 35 doubles, 223 hits, 16 triples, 143 runs scored. And here's the real mind-blowing stat here. 174 RBIs if you took that RBI rate and put over 162 game season. That's insane. That's crazy. In case you're curious, the record for RBIs in a season is 195 by Hack Wilson. So he's already approaching that. And he's 21 to 20. Just crazy output. And just to remind you for the record, he hit 396 that year. 396. He nearly hit 400 while doing that. It's crazy. Could you imagine someone hitting nearly 400 with over 40 home runs in a season? It's just, it's a bonkers. It's an incredible season. He led the league in hits, triples, home runs, RBIs, OBP, slugging, OPS plus, and total bases that season. He was worth 4.3 war in 69 games, right? Across a full season, that's 10 war. Now, we've had seasons of 10 war or 11 war put up by players before, but this is to remember is a catcher and in case you're curious no catcher in major league baseball history has put up a season of at least 10 war and again he's just 21 at this point point. and again it's worth asking would you have put that up over a full 162 game season i don't know there's no way unfortunately to know what we do know is that that puts it in the context we understand and it's a pretty darn impressive context now we go from 33 to 1934 and there was, of course, no matching that season in 1933. But he still put up one heck of a season in 1934. In 67 games, he hit 321 with a 397 OBP and a 1.015 OPS, which is good for a 187 OPS+. plus. That included 15 home runs, 20 doubles, 4 triples, 60 RBI, and 56 runs scored. It's still pretty darn good. He was worth 3.3 war that season in 67 games and he made his second all-star game as well that year and i'm not going to talk as much about all-star games with the negro league as i you know usually do but a lot of that is because the negro leagues didn't always have all-star games and so it's a little sporadic and i think paints when i say that there was like a three or four year gap where gibson didn't go to the all-star game it's not because he didn't make the All-Star Game ever an All-Star worthy season. It's because there wasn't an All-Star Game. So it's worth keeping in mind. Um, and for context, it's it's worth noting. I know we talked about this with Satchel Page as well. But it is worth noting that we are coming out of the tail end of the Great Depression. And oftentimes certain things like World Series, All-Star Games, things like that didn't always happen because... And frankly, sometimes the league didn't even happen because of financial woes. It's, a, it's something to keep in mind in context as to why I don't bring those up. When I usually do is because of that, because they didn't happen, at a, you know, that year. So moving on to 1935, that was, 1935 was a year to write home about. In 52 games, he hits 377 with a 1.097 OPS with a, with 11 home runs, 63 RBIs, 56 runs, and he even stole 10 bases. That's a 34 home run, 31 stolen base pace over 162 games for the record no catchers ever hit 30 home runs and stolen 30 bases in a season in fact no hitter has ever put up a 30 home run 30 stolen base pace while hitting over 370 only larry walker has hit over 350 and have more than 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases in a season so this is an unprecedented pace and just an incredible season it's just mind-boggling honestly He's an all-star again that year, marking his third all-star appearance in a row. And it's worth noting that his team, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, goes to the Negro League World Series 
And Gibson is fantastic. He hits 355 over the seven-game series with 11 hits, including a triple and a home run, five RBIs, and five runs scored in the Crawford victory. Now, if you thought 1935 was good, though just wait until 1936. Across 51 games, he hits 18 home runs with 67 RBIs and 53 runs scored while hitting 393 with a 1.262 OPS, which is good for a 218 OPS plus. That's a 57 home run pace, nearly hitting 400 with a 481 OBP. It'd be hard not to find that impressive. That is until you hear his 1937 stat line. Check this out. In 39 games, he hit 20 home runs with 13 doubles and 7 triples. That's more than one extra base hit per day. And then I mentioned he did this while hitting 417 with 73 RBIs and 60 runs scored. That's averaging nearly 2 RBIs per game. He had a 1.474 OPS and a 272 OPS plus. I'll say that again, 272 OPS plus. He was 172% better than the average hitter by OPS that year, just in case you missed it. That is the second highest OPS plus in a single season in American baseball history. The spoiler, we'll see number one here in a couple of seasons, but now the obvious caveat, as he says, this is an incredibly small sample. It's just 39 games. And so there's always questions, like I said before, about if he could have sustained this over a full season. Uh, regardless, it's still a remarkable stretch. In fact, while Babe Ruth once had 23 home runs and scored 58 runs over a 39-game stretch in 1930, he had just 56 RBIs over that time period, which is well short of Gibson's 73. The closest to the modern era we have is Sammy Sosa, 26 home runs in 1998 over 39 games, but he too fell well short of Gibson's runs and RBI totals. Ditto for Ryan Howard in 2006 when he also hit 26 home runs in 2006 over 39 games. Nowhere near those RBI or run totals. It's just incredible. There genuinely might not have been a better recorded stretch of baseball in American baseball history. Like When you look at those numbers beyond just the home runs, while hitting 417, again, just to keep that in mind, really there might not be a better 39-game stretch in, in baseball history. His home run pace that season would have netted him 83 home runs in a full Major League Baseball season to go along with 303 RBIs. 303! That's the kind of RBI pace he was on. That would shatter the RBI record by over 100 RBIs. And it's just, again, for context, that's mind-blowingly impressive. The rate at which he was driving in runs and was getting then, therefore, clutch hits, hitting home runs... All those things were just remarkable. You're talking about one of the greatest seasons in baseball history. There's just no other way to put it. It's a smaller one than we would think of in Major League Baseball history. But it's just, I don't know if any hitter's really been hotter and has done better over a stretch than Gibson did here in in this year. Now, 1938 uh, is no 273 OPS plus season, but still pretty darn good as his 1.181 OPS over 47 games was good for a 202 OPS plus. He hit 367 with 13 home runs, 11 doubles, and 4 triples, along with 54 RBIs and 53 runs scored. Jumping over to 1939, that was even better as he hit 377 with a 1.273 OPS, which is good for a 240 OPS plus, with 14 home runs in 36 games with 56 RBIs and 39 runs. Now, he's overplaying at this point with the Homestead Grays, and they make the the Negro League World Series that year, and he is fantastic in the series. Gibson hits 353 with two home runs, four RBIs, and three runs scored in five games as the Homestead Grays capture uh, their first Negro League World Series title. Going into 1940, Gibson actually spends time in several different leagues, bouncing around, trying to play as much baseball as he can here in 1940. He ends up heading south of the border for the first recorded time. He splits the season between the Northern Negro League and the Mexican League down south. And it's worth noting that this is right around when we start seeing pushes from Pittsburgh locals, writers in the area, and from the owners of the Homestead Grays 
for the Pittsburgh Pirates to sign Josh Gibson. That they felt he would have been perfect, would have succeeded in Major League Baseball, and would have been a superstar over there. And so they pushed pretty heavily for the Pirates to sign him. And this kind of, it really started around from the way history seems to paint it, right around 1937 is when this first starts up. But really had a fever pitch in 1940, and base was blocked at every turn. Like most attempts were for bringing African-American players into into the majors by, as I like to call them, the hashtag worst commissioner ever, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Instead, Gibson goes down and plays in Mexico and dominates. In 1940, between the Negro National League and the Mexican League, Gibson plays in at least 24 games, hitting 12 home runs with 40 RBIs, 34 runs scored, and 7 doubles. He does this while hitting 449 with a 538 OBP and a 1.508 OPS, which is good for 285 OPS+, plus, which still stands to this day as the highest single-season OPS plus in baseball history. Absolutely incredible. It's worth noting also around this time period, and pretty much throughout his entire career, he actually was playing in Puerto Rico at the time. We just don't really have any numbers or statistics from that time period so keep that in mind as well he spends all of 1941 in the mexican league playing for uh and i'm gonna do my best here zules de veracruz and he's an absolute superstar down there in 94 games he hits 374 with 33 home runs 124 rbis 31 doubles three triples seven stolen bases and 100 runs scored to go along with a 484 obp and a 1.238 OPS, which is good for a 202 OPS+. plus. That would be considered an all-timer season if it occurred over 162 games, let alone just 94 games. If you extrapolate that over 162-game pace, that's 58 home runs, 213 RBIs, again, breaking the RBI record, 53 doubles, 5 triples, 12 stolen bases, and 172 runs scored. Those are video game numbers, mostly if you played the video game on rookie mode. It, unbelievable numbers, genuinely just incredible. And for those who would want to, you know, scream small sample size for some of these other seasons, this is over 94 games, it's three quarters of a season, if not right around there, and he's putting up these numbers still. You really can't make the argument that he couldn't have put up these numbers over 162 games. It seems pretty likely he could have and would have, uh, barring injury. So, very impressive, really cool season from Josh Gibson. It's worth noting, again, as I mentioned, as if these weren't impressive enough on their own, Gibson played in Puerto Rico, and he did so that year as well. And while we don't have the numbers from the season, we do know he was named MVP of the league that year, which Gibson called the fondest moment of his career. And I want you to think about that for a second. Just take a second here and think about that. The man who was likely the greatest slugger in American history, baseball-wise, his fondest memories of recognition were in Puerto Rico. Not in his hometown in Georgia, not in Pittsburgh, where he played almost his entire career, or even in his home country, where he played baseball in America. It was in Puerto Rico, and the adulation and respect that he got in Puerto Rico as a baseball player was something that he felt like he wasn't getting in his own home country. And that's just that hurts me in my heart. That hurts me in my soul a little bit as someone who loves baseball and loves the players who play baseball. I know I talk a lot about how much I love baseball, but the reason I sat down to do this podcast was because I love the players. I, I like seeing the players as more than just laundry as more than just these automatons that go out and entertain me. And I know some people feel that they, they don't they don't stop to see them as human. And the one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, so we did start seeing these players as humans. So we did get to hear their story. And so I kind of keep myself in check and remember to see them as human beings. And that kind of, I mean, it does, it hurts me in my soul a little bit to know that we didn't do right by Josh Gibson in a lot of ways. And I don't like that. 1942 saw Gibson return to the Negro National League, and he has a fantastic season by anyone's standards, really other than his. He hits 313 with 10 home runs, 7 doubles, 2 triples, 54 RBIs, and 47 runs across 54 games, along with a 439 OBP and a 978 OPS. For the record, this is the first season in his career since 1932, aka 10 years ago, where he had an OPS under 1. 
That's a 10-year stretch where he had an OPS over one. That's insane. It's incredible. Uh, I, I really can't even fathom just how excellent and consistent and healthy, frankly, you have to be to be able to do that. The the NN2, as it was called, because there were technically two Negro National Leagues, had two All-Star games that year, and Gibson is named to both of them and plays in both of them that year. The Grays returned to the Negro League World Series that year. They lose in four games. Gibson struggles this time around, mustering just one hit in the series, but does manage to score two runs. 1943, Gibson plays all over the place. He plays in 78 known games and had a spectacular season, hitting 441 with 20 home runs, 23 doubles, 112 RBIs, and 101, uh, 101 runs scored. In addition, he had an astonishing 541 OBP and a 1.342 OPS, which is good for a 262 OPS+. plus. That's good for the fifth highest OPS plus season of all time. And in case you're curious, that means Gibson had the first, second, and fifth highest OPS plus seasons in history. That alone is pretty cementing as one of the greatest sluggers ever. Full stop. The Grays returned to the Negro League World Series and were triumphant this time, winning in seven games. Unfortunately, once again, Gibson struggles here, hitting just 192 in the series with no home runs. But they do walk away uh, Negro League World Series champions. Unfortunately, it wasn't all slugging home runs and winning championships that year for Gibson. Gosh, this same year at 31 years old, he was admitted to the hospital for what was called at the time a nervous breakdown. After his release, rumors started circulating he was drinking heavily and he was smoking marijuana. And this is one of the biggest misconceptions of Josh Gibson's career. And looking back on drives me crazy. Because it wasn't until after his death a few years from now that it would be revealed that he had a brain tumor. A brain tumor. And that was what was causing so many of his issues. And he was living in constant pain. And the drinking and the weed were, at the time, the only ways he had available to deal with that pain. And for a long time, this was held against him in certain ways and in certain biographical depictions and things like that. And it's just, it's not right, and it drives me crazy. Because it's tragic enough that we end up losing Josh Gibson, not to jump ahead as young as we do, and that we don't get as much Josh Gibson in baseball as we do. To have him portrayed that way, just, it, it's, it isn't fair to his legacy. It isn't fair to what he was able to accomplish. And frankly, also the fact that he had a brain tumor and played for like four more years is remarkable. Because the thing is, none of this slows him down. In 1944, he played in 55 games, hitting 10 home runs with 9 doubles, 6 triples, 51 RBIs, and 43 runs scored, all while hitting 345 with a 436 OBP and a 1.044 OPS, which is good for a 178 OPS+. plus. Again, doing this with a brain tumor. The Grays successfully defended their Negro League World Series crown, and Gibson was fantastic in this series. He hits 400 across five games in the series with a home run to boot. Now, moving over to 1945, this was more of the same. He hits 339 with four with a 452 OBP and a 1.027 OPS. This is good for a 193 OPS plus with eight home runs, seven doubles, five triples, 41 RBIs, and 38 runs scored. This would also mark Gibson's final trip to the Negro League World Series as the Grays would lose in four games with Gibson managing just two hits in the series. Now, even in 1946, while dealing with extreme and constant pain at the age of 34, Gibson still is great. He hits 314 with 13 home runs and 12 doubles in 50 games with 52 RBIs and 34 runs scored. He even had a 372 OBP and a 1.012 OPS, which was good for a 182 OPS+. plus. Now, according to Joe Pazanski in the write-up that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he was still crushing monster 450-500 foot home runs, even at this point, and with his health failing, he was still hitting monster home runs, and he would continue doing so right up until his death. And unfortunately, in January of 1947, he does pass away in his mother's home from from his brain tumor. And here's 
what publications in Pittsburgh wrote upon his death, just to give you an idea of the impact he had on the area. And it's interesting. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and which isn't that far from Pittsburgh. And it's funny, Pittsburgh is one of kind of Cleveland's rivals, right? Especially in football, but baseball, not so much because they play in other leagues. But Pittsburgh and, and, and Cleveland have long had a storied and somewhat ugly rivalry. But it, I've always found it interesting because they're basically the same city. Pittsburgh and Cleveland are the are the Spider-Man meme where they'll point at each other. And, and so I've always, in a way, even though I obviously long considered them my rivals, I've always had a bit of a fondness for Pittsburgh. And PNC Park, for instance, is one of my favorite places to go see a game. I, I like that city a lot. And what I can tell you about having interacted with a lot of people from Pittsburgh is that they love their athletes like they're their own, right? That if you come and you play in Pittsburgh and you embrace the city and you you know, from there, again, because it's worth noting, Gibson was from, originally from Georgia, but moved as a young child to Pittsburgh, as that was a steel worker in the area. And he went to high school there. He basically lived in Pittsburgh his entire life. So he's from Pittsburgh. He was, he played in Pittsburgh. He was one of them. And that's how they treated him. And that's how the media also treated him. It's unfortunate they just didn't go beyond that beyond that area but this is what they wrote about him when he died gibson's career the pittsburgh sun telegraph wrote was a story of ponderous hitting of home runs and line drives which broke up many games the pittsburgh post gazette wrote josh gibson was one of the greatest distance hitters in the history of baseball the pittsburgh press wrote a tremendous power hitter gibson once hit four home runs against the memphis red sox in 1938 he was credited with a 15 with a 513 foot home run and one essay, Pennsylvania. Then my favorite, though, written in the Pittsburgh Courier, the great umpire has silenced the mighty bat of one of baseball's greatest sluggers of all time, Joshua Josh Gibson, the peerless of Negro catchers, and the man whose prodigious feats at the plate have thrilled baseball fans across the nation and on the sultry soil of Latin America for the past 19 years. The king of sluggers is dead. Long live the king. And that's just, that sums it up right there. That's so good, uh, really getting a sense of how Josh Gibson encapsulated the, the, the perfect slugger. And I wish we wrote about baseball that way still. We don't, unfortunately, I feel like sometimes, and I really wish we did because that's just, it's beautiful. And if someone wrote something that nice about me after I died, I'd be far too lucky. So obviously that is the far too short and far too under-recorded career of Josh Gibson. I'll say it, the greatest slugger to play baseball in America. I don't need the statistics, and that sounds weird coming from me, because you don't get as much here on this podcast, but I'm a stats guy. And if you follow anything I do outside of of this podcast, I've, in fact, been accused of being a, a stats nerd. I have a master's degree in sports analytics. I've created several statistics and, and talked about them and, and done several modeling and statistical studies for PitcherList. And I'm telling you right now, I don't care about the numbers right now. That's not how I see this. I the, He is full stop the greatest slugger to play baseball in America. When you look at some of these numbers, when you look at the legacy left for him, I can get the argument for Ruth. I can get the argument for Maris or Mantle or Bonds. I, I get them all. But you, you hear this story and it's hard not to think that Gibson was the greatest slugger to play baseball in America. His legacy will always be a complicated one due to that lack of statistics and obviously is shrouded to a certain degree in racism and adversity being not allowed to play in the major leagues it's unfortunate that you have to imagine if he had continued to to live past 30 you know what 36 or so that we probably would have seen him in the majors at some point kind of like we did page but it probably would have been you know in the latter years of his career and the fact that we never got to see prime Josh Gibson play in Major League Baseball is is a, is a real genuine shame and speaks volumes about how we need to view baseball at that time and, and what was missing from it in the Major Leagues. Hopefully, as we talk about Gibson more and more and as history begins to recognize Josh Gibson more and more, and, and the Negro Leagues as a whole more and more, that 
more people talk about Gibson, that Gibson will become more of a household name in the way that Mantle or Ruth or Maris are, that we start to have bigger discussions about the Negro League players and their place in baseball history, and, and that we give proper perspective to those players and, and give them their due. Gibson certainly deserved it and has earned that, uh, being one of the greatest players to ever play the game. So that's our career perspective for Josh Gibson. I know it feels abrupt, and it's because his career ended abruptly. And I, I just I do wonder what had happened if we'd gotten probably what four to five more years of Gibson's career. What could we have seen, and what could have happened? It would have been really fascinating to see. And could he have eclipsed a thousand home runs in his career? That sort of thing. It's a real genuine shame, but we also can't get too wrapped up in that. We should still celebrate the career we had and the things that Gibson accomplished while he was alive. So with that said, let's take one more quick break, and then we'll see where Gibson falls on our list, and we'll rank him. Welcome back. Before we dive headlong into ranking Josh Gibson, let's take a quick visit to the list, and let's see where things stand right now. Currently at number one on our list, we have Satchel Page. Then number two is Mickey Mantle. Number three is Greg Maddox. Number four is Mike Trout. Number five is Ichiro Suzuki. Number six is George Brett. Number seven is Adrian Beltre. Number eight is Clayton Kershaw. Number nine is Edgar Martinez. Number 10 is Sandy Koufax. To round up the top 15, Tony Gwynn is number 11. Hank Greenberg is number 12. Joey Votto is number 13. Ron Santo is number 14. And Kenny Lofton is number 15. Number 20 is Steve Carlton. Number 25 is Fred McGriff. Number 30 is Mo Vaughn. Number 35 is Jamie Moyer. Number 40 is Ryan Braun. Number 45 is Jose Bautista. Number 50 is Brad Radke. Number 55 is Herb Score. And then finally, number 56 is Mark Pryor. And number 57 is James Paxton. So the question, obviously, with Josh Gibson is basically between number one and number two. At some point, is he above Satchel Page? And then is he, if not, is he above Mickey Mantle? I think really, I'd even put him above Maddox. I'd put him above Trout. I'd put him above Ichiro. So I think that's a no-brainer. So it's basically between Page, Gibson, and Mantle here. And this is a really uh, another tough one. Like ranking Satchel Page last week, this really isn't a statistical comparison we're making here. We, we don't have the numbers. It's more of a question of legend and historical impact and the things that they did accomplish that we know of and, and, and can read about and hear about. It's a question of legacy and representation. We had uh, a lot more statistics and even more folklore for Page because he lived longer than Gibson. We have multiple memoirs from Page himself. And his name is a bit more name recognition because he did make it to the majors and was part of a World Series winning team while he played in the major league, the major leagues uh, with the Cleveland uh, Indians. And because of this, I think Page retains the number one spot on the list because he has much, if not all, the legacy and cultural impact of Josh Gibson. But we do have more numbers for him. We do have more statistics and, and accomplishments. And we have just more history. We have more anecdotes. We have more of these legends and myths and whatnot for Paige. So I'm going to keep Paige at number one. I think that's where I'm going to stand right there. But the question is then, is Mantle number two or is Gibson number two? So that's what we're arguing here right now. And looking at Mantle, he's another towering home run hitter who was the face of baseball for at least a decade. And was a major part of some of the greatest teams ever. Mantle hit 536 home runs. Yet, like Gibson's Hall of Fame plaque claims he had 800 home runs. We just don't have the, the box scores. We don't have the numbers to cement that. Mantle was a career 172 OPS plus hitter and accumulated 110.2 war. But we mentioned that for the numbers we have, Gibson was on 160 war pace and was a career 201 OPS plus hitter. Mantle played for 18 years while Gibson played for 17 Gibson had eight seasons with an OPS plus over 200, while Mantle had just three. On the other hand, we have record of Mantle playing 2,401 games compared to under 1,000 for Gibson. And I I just, I, I don't know how to weigh what we know versus what we don't. Again, I'm a statistics person, so that's 
that that's part of how I'm wired. And I, I do struggle with this. And I, I'm having a hard time with this. I'm, I'm really torn. And I keep going back and forth here. And there's a part of me that could make the blanket statement that I think Josh Gibson is more important than Mickey Mantle. It's not necessarily that I think Mickey Mantle is better or worse than Gibson, but there's a part of me that, that firmly believes that Josh Gibson is more important to the story of baseball than Mickey Mantle in some ways. And with that being said, also, I think we have enough information that we can probably say Gibson was a better hitter than Mantle. It would all be speculation to a certain degree or us trusting what we're hearing from anecdotes and from legends and things like that. But I think that we have enough to maybe say that's true. Again, Bonds himself claims that Gibson is the real home run king. And that's got to be an argument in his favor. And who am I to tell Barry Bonds that he's wrong? Heck, Gibson won consecutive triple crowns in 1936 and 1937. That's never happened since then. He's the only player to have done that in professional baseball. He's a two-time Negro League champion. He's a 12-time All-Star. He's a three-time batting champ. He His lowest batting average for his career was 311. He never hit under 300 in a single season in his entire career, which is just incredible consistency when also demonstrating that much power. It's hard to argue he wasn't as good, if not better, than Mantle as a hitter. As I said, I think he, he has not beat in batting average as well by a wide margin, let alone also than his prodigious power. I, I really have a hard time with this one to figure out whether I trust the, the, the statistics we have or what I believe to probably be true. I think there is an interesting cultural aspect to consider here as well. How many players have had as many pop culture references as Josh Gibson did? We've had multiple movies made about Gibson's life, multiple documentaries done on his life, but also one of the most iconic baseball movies of all time, the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings has a character played by James Earl Jones that is based off of Gibson. Heck, the reason I knew who Josh Gibson was as a kid is because a character in an episode of The X-Files is based off of him. Sure, Mantle had movies and whatnot, but even the roles Gibson had based off of him in pop culture simply enhanced the folklore aura that surrounds his story. Literally, the whole The X-Files thing is about them going and checking out a legendary baseball player that's under-recognized as a black baseball player. So it just always seems to almost even enhance that quality that we're talking about. Heck, he had an opera written about him in 2017 called The Summer King. An opera for crying out loud. You have to have a certain cultural impact and, again, not to keep saying it over and over, but a certain sense of a larger-than-life story, an epic, almost, even to have an opera written about you. That's what opera does, is it takes these stories of myth and legend, you need to think of some of the great operas, and they're all telling folklore and whatnot. And it, it seems almost too perfect that he had an opera written about him. And obviously, this is a, a real neck-and-neck neck decision here between Mantle and, and Gibson here. And I, like, I, I've been literally going... I've, I've been researching this all week. I've been doing the, the research on Gibson... And it's been a, a really great experience. I've been really having a blast with it and learning about Josh Gibson and learning more than I already knew. And I have just all week been going back and forth while doing the research for this. And I think in my heart of hearts, which is all I can do, all I can do is say to myself as a baseball fan, as a lover of the game, who is decently knowledgeable, who maybe has good instincts about these things, what's my gut tell me? What's my heart tell me? And I think at the end of the day... I can't discount the 800 home runs, if not more. There are legitimate claims to him hitting 962. And it's on his Hall of Fame plaque. I can't discount that. If it's good enough for the Hall of Fame to consider legit, then it's good enough for me, right? Like, I have my disagreements with the Hall of Fame. We have butted heads at times, and I think we do have some disagreements about certain players and about certain things. But I'm not going to say that they're wrong about 800 home runs. And if they're right, then how do I not consider that? If, if they think it is legit enough to put it on his Hall of Fame plaque, then I think you have to consider it. And if so, then it's no-brainer. Gibson is, is number two on this list here, I think. And I certainly understand if you feel differently going in a different direction as to how we consider the legacy and the missing statistics of players like Gibson. 
What I will say is it's worth noting that also don't discount these numbers based on them not occurring in the majors. Many historians have stated that the Negro Leagues were the equal to the major leagues at the time in terms of talent and difficulty and the quality of opponents that you're facing. So don't also try to say he was facing lesser competition. That's not true at all. By all accounts, he was facing just as difficult uh, competition as he would have faced in the majors. I think with all that, yeah, I think that's where I'm going to go. If you disagree, please, by all means, I encourage the discussion and would welcome it. So reach out to me, reach out to the podcast. Let's have it. Let's talk about it. But I think Josh Gibson is the new number two player on my list here. That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for coming out and listening. This is a really important player and a really important discussion and legacy to to discuss. We're talking about one of the most important African-American players to ever play the game. We're talking about someone who's instrumental to playing to, to baseball and the story of baseball here in America and throughout the world. I think one of the things that I think I try to really get away from is the idea that the major leagues are the only story to tell in baseball, that baseball is, is a, a, both a global sport and even in America, when you talk about things like the Negro Leagues and stuff like that, that they were just important to actually telling the story of baseball as the major leagues. So I'm really happy to tell this story and really happy to try and help get more recognition for Josh Gibson and for his legacy. And I, again, like talking with Paige, I hope I did justice to him and to his legacy. I hope you all learned something. And uh, thank you. Thank you again so much for joining me. We'll be back. We're now weekly. So we will be back next week. I think I'm going to try and do, at some point this month, uh, a fun episode where I do a couple of players where I talk about women in baseball, women who played baseball, because it is now going from Black History Month to Women's History Month. And so I'd love to do an episode kind of talking about that because I think it'll be super fun. There's some really fun stories to tell there. I'm still putting that together, though, so I'm not quite sure when that'll come out. But sometime this month, we will have a Women in Baseball episode. In the meantime, I think next week we will do Scott Rowland because, as we mentioned before, he just got elected to the Hall of Fame. And so I would love to dive into that. And I've been hotly contested by some folks. And I'd like to put my two cents in because I, I think Scott Rowland is a worthy Hall of Famer. Spoiler alert. And uh, I think it'll be fun to discuss and debate and go through. Thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And I will talk to you next week here Friday at noon. Bye.